when Russia was first becoming an empire in the 10th century. Medieval sources tell us that the emperor in Kiev was looking for a religion that could unite his people. So he sent emissaries to the Muslims in Bulgaria, the Catholics in Germany, and the Orthodox in Greece. Ultimately, it is reported, the emperor chose to become Orthodox because his emissaries returning from the Hagia Sophia in Constantinople had this to say. We knew not whether we were in heaven or on earth. For on earth there is no such splendor or such beauty, and we are at a loss how to describe it. We only know that God dwells there among men, and their service is fairer than the ceremonies of other nations. In other words, the the Russians converted to Orthodox Christianity because in the worship of the Orthodox they experienced the goal of all religion, to unite heaven and earth. Now, the Orthodox like to tell this story for obvious reasons, but I like to think it would have gone a little differently if the Russians had just waited another century or two until the Gothic movement got underway in France. I think we'll never know. Nevertheless, what these emissaries experienced in the grandeur of the Hagia Sophia should in some way be true even at the simplest masses, even of the Roman Rite. When we are at Mass, we should not know whether we are in heaven or on earth. And this is not just because elaborate ceremonies are fun or because incense makes us feel mystical. The reason it is essential that we work to make our earthly liturgy seem heavenly is because the one true, perfect, and eternal liturgy is in heaven. And our liturgy is always a participation in it. What do I mean? Two weeks ago we talked about how Jesus offered himself to his Father on the cross, and how our Mass participates in that one offering. Well, this act of the Son offering himself to the Father is an eternal action. It continues after the resurrection and after the ascension in a permanent, lasting way. The Son spends all of eternity offering himself to the Father. And this eternal action is best described as a liturgy. In fact, significant sections of the book of Revelation seem to exist purely for the sake of trying to describe this heavenly liturgy. To describe what it would look like for the Son to offer himself eternally to the Father, and for all the angels and saints to unite themselves to this offering. This is the one true, perfect, and eternal liturgy of heaven. It is the only liturgy that exists, and it is this heavenly liturgy that becomes present on earth every time we celebrate the Mass. Our earthly worship must strive to be heavenly, because the entire purpose of our worship here on earth is to instantiate and participate in the one liturgy of heaven. 
Now, these are not quite the fun facts that I've been offering, but I will call your attention to three sections of the Mass related to the heavenly liturgy. First, we have the ending of the preface, which is often phrased, And so with angels and archangels, with thrones and dominions, and with all the hosts and powers of heaven, we sing the hymn of your glory as without end we acclaim. This is not just poetic language. When we celebrate the Mass, we are truly, objectively, offering worship along with the angels in heaven. Second, we have the two invocations of the saints in the long Eucharistic prayer that I use. In the first invocation, consisting of the apostles, early popes, and other foundational figures of the ancient Roman Church, we plead for the prayers of the saints, that they would pray along with us. In the second invocation, consisting entirely of ancient martyrs, we ask that we might join the saints in heaven. Now notice, this is a list of martyrs. If we're asking to join them, we're asking for a share in martyrdom. Again, our worship is not a solitary, earthly worship. When we offer the Mass, we are offering it along with all of the angels and saints in heaven who are already participating in that one true, perfect, and eternal liturgy of heaven. Third, we have the prayer that the priest prays with his hands together and head bowed. He prays, In humble prayer we ask you, Almighty God, command that these gifts be borne by the hands of your holy angel, to your altar on high in the sight of your divine majesty. Just as there is one liturgy, there is also only one altar, the heavenly altar. In this part of the Mass, the priest asks on behalf of all present that our offerings be offered on the heavenly altar so that we can receive the grace and blessings that come from heavenly worship. Now, just as the Mass is a source of unity with heaven, it is also a source of unity with each other. In modern society, we live fenced off from our neighbors, miles and even thousands of miles apart from our relatives, with only one or two generations in each house. So we desperately crave community. And the parish ought to provide that community through coffee hours and social events and prayer groups. But we can't stop there, because this is the kind of community that people also find at the YMCA or in an exercise class. What the Mass does is it takes that basic level of community, which has to be present, and it builds off of it. It transforms that early level of community into a far more profound spiritual sharing that is best described not as community, but as communion. The Mass brings us into communion with each other in two ways, through our shared identity and our shared purpose. Our shared identity is as members of the body of Christ, adopted by the Father as his beloved sons and daughters. This is the only identity truly able to transcend divisions of race, class, and gender. It is only in Christ that all can finally be one, 
because it is in Jesus and Jesus alone that we find the source of unity for all creation. Everything else falls short. And then our shared purpose at Mass is our common worship. Assembled together as the one body of Christ, we offer ourselves as Christ to the Father in heaven. The ultimate purpose of human existence is to give glory to God, and worship is the highest expression of the glory that we offer to God. So nothing can unify humanity more than the Mass, because nothing expresses as effectively the perfection of our shared nature. We see this deep communion reflected in the Mass, especially in the Mass following the Second Vatican Council, in the fact that very few of the prayers of the Mass are individualized. Instead, nearly every prayer uses we and us to express our shared identity and common purpose. The fact that the Mass joins us together in communion has important implications for our worship practices. Again, three examples. First, every single Mass, Sunday Mass, Daily Mass, Nursing Home Mass, every single Mass is always offered in communion with the Pope and the local bishop. If you do not hear the name of the Pope and the local bishop when you are at Mass, you are not in a Catholic church. Our communion with these two figures ensures our communion with the entire worldwide church. Second, on Sundays and solemnities, we pray the creed together, a practice that was introduced when Europe was deeply divided over the Arian heresy, the heresy that said that Jesus was a demigod, he was not fully God. If the Mass truly brings us into such deep communion with each other, that communion has to be based on reality, not just appearance. The praying of the Creed is a statement that we must first agree on the nature of the God we are worshiping before we can authentically worship Him together. Finally, we have the sometimes controversial practice of closed communion, meaning that only Catholics are allowed to receive communion at a Catholic Mass. Again, this is out of a desire to ensure that the outward expression reflects the inner reality. If a Christian or a body of Christians have publicly and willfully separated themselves from the Pope or the local bishop, they have already declared that they are no longer in communion with the Catholic Church. It would be hypocritical for us to receive communion at their church, or for them to receive communion at our church, when our public actions have denied the reality of our communion in a fundamental way. And this should make clear to us a final point. It is in the reception of the Eucharist that both our unity with the liturgy in heaven and our communion with each other find their greatest expression. How can we ever be closer to Jesus in heaven than to receive his physical presence into us? How can we be closer to each other or to the saints than in the communal sharing in our one Lord? Pertinent to this Mass, 
we will dismiss our catechumens today because their communion with us is imperfect and they will only be welcomed to the fullness of the Mass after their communion with us is made perfect through the reception of baptism and confirmation. Finally, on a more practical note, this seems like the appropriate homily in which to discuss holding hands at the Our Father, which many people have asked me about. Cue sharp intake of breath. It says it right there in the homily. Cue sharp intake of breath. <gasps> the desire behind holding hands during the Our Father is rooted in exactly the communion mentality that we have been discussing here. The desire certainly accords with the purpose and meaning of the Mass. The question we have to ask is whether holding hands is effective in achieving this desire. Does it serve to enhance our communion with each other, or does it serve more as a distraction? In my time as a priest, I have determined that it is not my place to decide. I can't actually tell you whether it is enhancing your communion or not. And our bishops have neither recommended nor condemned the practice, even though it is widespread. It seems most akin to a personal devotion of the people. And as with any personal devotion of the people, my job as the pastor is to evaluate it for spiritual harm. If I think it's spiritually harmful, I shut it down. If I don't think it's spiritually harmful, I don't touch it, lest I quash a movement of the Holy Spirit. So, while holding hands of the Our Father is a little more kumbaya than my personal tastes, I don't see anything spiritually harmful in it, and so I'm not going to touch it. But I would ask three things. First, be aware of sickness. If you are getting over a cold, please do not hold hands to the Our Father, or shake hands at the sign of peace, or receive from the chalice. Second, please regard this as a personal devotion. This practice is neither condemned nor required, which means that if your neighbor is keeping their hands to themselves, please respect their choice. Don't give them the side eye. Finally, and this is the theological point, which I love, there is an important change that happens during the Mass after the Our Father. We go from addressing the Father, as we do for most of the Mass, to addressing Jesus present on the altar in the Eucharist. And our gestures should reflect that there has been a change. So if you can remember to do so, please drop your hands following the prayer, for the kingdom and the power and the glory are yours now and forever. That's the prayer that ends our praying of the Our Father, and it is after that prayer that we turn our attention to Jesus. Dropping your hands at that point is what most Seattle parishes do, what I grew up doing. And I'm not saying we have to be like Seattle, but I am saying it makes a little more theological sense, so let's try it out. My friends, this week we enter into Lent. And so I would like to end with one final musing. As you choose a Lenten devotion, would you consider attending daily Mass, even once a week? 
We have masses before work, we have masses after work, we have masses during the day. The Mass is a sacrifice and a communion, the pinnacle of human worship and the fulfillment of our deepest desires. Lent is the perfect time to enter even more deeply into that mystery.